Numbers chapter 6, where we left off. So make sure you have your Bibles open there to Numbers chapter 6. And uh, the title is The Vow. It's going to be about the Nazarene vow uh, that uh, we will see and, and, and discuss here this evening. Many of you may already know what the Nazarene vow is, but maybe do not study the Old Testament and they do not much know much about the Nazarene vow. But as we go through here, we're going to, I pray that the Lord will just show you in the connection of how these things relate to the coming of the Messiah, the, the expectation of God, the expectation for his people to live a holy life. A life pleasing to him. That's what it means to have a holy life. A life that is daily living for him. It's, a, it's pleasing to him in the things we say and the things we do and places we go. And we see here in the vow of, the, of a Nazarite and the purpose of that vow. We start here in Numbers chapter 6 verse 1 and 2. Follow along with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. And that's important that you just understand right up front what the Lord's expectation is to told Moses and the Moses to tell the people that it can be a man or a woman who can commit their life to separate their life for the purpose or consecrate or I mean complete focus their lives is for the Lord and that they take this vow between them and the Lord that says I'm God I'm going to follow you my life is going to be surrendered completely to you and this vow of the Nazarite here was to express one's desire to draw close to God there's a lot of things that we're going to understand, hopefully, tonight, that it's not just about words. You can say you want a closer relationship with God. You can say it all you want. That does not mean you are close to God. It's not only in your words, but your actions are what really reflect of a heart that is consecrated for the Lord. And the next thing that brings clarity if we really are dedicated our life to the Lord is if we're willing to take the steps of faith and surrender our lives, but take the steps of faith to do things that God is calling you to do that is completely against your nature. What kind of nature is that? The selfish, the cardinal nature, the old man that still lives within us, that if it's not dead, it will raise up and it will completely not want to do what God calls you to do. Because it completely goes against what your flesh wants to do. And so these people, God, Lord says to Moses, these people are going to be consecrated or are going to be separate. They're going to have a desire, not just a feeling, but a deep desire from the heart of their heart that says, I am going to live for God. I'm going to separate myself. I don't care what the world is telling me. I don't care what my family tells me. I don't care what my spouse tells me. I don't care what my kids are demanding. I, even my own flesh that tries to tell me I shouldn't do these things. I don't want to do these things. I am concentrating. I, my desire is to serve God. To separate oneself from the comforts and the pleasures of this world. That's what it meant here. 
I'm not looking for the comfort of the world. I'm not looking for the, 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 the pleasures of the world. I'm only wanting to separate myself for the Lord. The, the word Nazarite in the Hebrew is Nazir. It means set apart. I want my life set apart for God. And anyone who's watching my life or listening to my words, seeing my actions and the things I don't have to say, but my actions are what I do and don't do. People are going to say, he is separated. His life is separated for the Lord. There's no question that is a godly man. There's no question that's a godly woman who wants to please God in everything they say and do in every aspect of their life. It's not just a Sunday morning thing. It's not only when you get around some Christian friends so you kind of act differently about You can be around the most worldly cardinal friend of yours on that roof working hard and that man knows you're a godly man set apart for God. You just know it. But they took a vow. They took a vow. There are several examples that we'll, we can see who have taken that remarkable Nazarite vow to be set apart for God. The first one, of course, you'll think of is what? Samson. Samson is usually the guy that is the poster child of doing it right and then falling on his face and doing it completely wrong. <laughs> That's a perfect example of someone who's, I'm, Lord, I'm yours, man. I'm, I'm all for you. And does it right. And then his flesh, his lust of sex and drugs and alcohol just consumed him and he fl- fell flat on his face. We see that in Judges 13, verse 5. That man. Then we see John the Baptist. He was a Nazarite. He started well. And he finished well. He didn't compromise his life in any form or fashion. He was completely dedicated his life to do what God had called him to do. And that would be the forerunner or the representative of the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. We see that in Luke 1.15. Now some will say Paul was a Nazarite. Because of the fact that there was a comment made in Acts chapter 18 verse 18. When he took was cutting his hair when he got to a point, uh, a place outside of, of uh, Jerusalem on his travels and he cut his hair because that is what happens when you're done with the vow of the Nazarite vow. We're going to talk a little bit more in details what this vow is. We also see that there is really no biblical example in the scriptures of a woman taking the vow except for Manoah's wife during her pregnancy with Simon uh, or Samson in Judges 13.4. There's only a, one, a reference that it appears that she said, I'm separating my life for you, Lord. Bless me, Lord. And uh, Samson came along. In verse 3, we're going to see the requirements of someone who's taken this vow. And it says, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Verse 5. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. 
Then he shall let the locks of, it, of the hair of his head grow. And all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself... He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister, when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. Verse 8. All the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord. So the Nazarite was forbidden to eat or drink Anything from the grapevine, any form of it whatsoever. And that's an interesting point because God wanted nothing even remotely close to them taking in something that could be fermented and cause them their, their, his, the mind to be cloudy. And that's what alcohol does. That's what things that can cloud your mind. And alcohol is one of those. And so what happens here is this is a form of self-denial. Something that is good that we see in the scriptures. So generally the wine and the grapes, the products that come from that, though that we see as a blessing and reference as a blessing in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 10. We also see that something to be grateful receiving from God is, is good. We see that in Psalm 104, verse 15. And so it was a blessing to have a good harvest of grapes to produce the wine and to do those things. This is of the God. But when you separate yourself from God, one of the things he will ask you to do is self-denial. Something that everyone else is partaking of. But for you, and because you're separated from God and the work of God and the things of God, you are being in self-denial and you will not partake of anything of that grapevine. The second thing that we see here is that there was, the, there was supposed to be no razor shall come upon his head during that period of time. The hair was to be allowed to grow all during the period of the vow that was made. And then once the vow was done, then they could cut their hair and bring conclusion of the vow. That was the official closure. Why? Because of the three things that they were to not do, cutting hair was the outward expression that everyone could tell when you were in the vow and when you were not in the vow. It was an outward expression. This was a way of outward demonstrating to the world that this man or woman was under a special vow. Now the, the, uh, the poster child, Samson, when we read his life, his strength came from his Nazarite's vow and consecration and separation to God and, and his hair is what gave him that strength. And he was taking out the enemies with no problem with his strength. But the problem is, is that strength was outwardly brutal strength of, of physical lifting and moving and, and battling. The challenge is, is that he was not separated completely in internal man. 
Because we know that he had a problem with lust and sleeping around with women, and a woman by the name of Delilah came into his life. Do you know the story? Delilah cut his hair after manipulating the man and getting him to find to a point where he was weak enough to give out the secret of his Nazarite strength. The most public, the most visible vow His strength was lost just like that with the cutting of his hair. And he didn't even know he lost it. She had to bring him out of his stupor when the enemy came after him as they were hiding in the same room. You know the story. Go back and read it if you you don't remember it. But also you have to understand that didn't just happen, Pastor. He didn't just happen to fall into sin by get, giving out the secret and, and, and allowing this woman to, and his enemy to, to coerce him and get his hair cut. It just, it just happened. No, it didn't just happen. That was the final outward expression of a fallen man, I believe, because we know in the story with Samson, it started when he both was drinking in the parties. Where do we see that? We see that in Judges chapter 14, verse 10. He had a problem with drinking. When you have a problem with drinking, it will cause you to lead you to other things and make bad decisions in your life. Ask Samson. He also, not only did he drink and break that vow, we also know in the scriptures in Judges 14, verses 8 and 9, he actually touched a dead carcass. He wasn't supposed to touch anything dead. But he compromised and he did it anyway. But when it came to the most obvious public sin of having his hair cut before the vow complete, he lost everything. And you know, the end result, he ended up dying. There's a season, and there is a sense, in which if you do not deal with the inner things that no one else knows about, and even the things that people do know about you, it will bring to a light that is public. It's only a matter of time you're going to self-destruct. And everyone will know. What the key is, is Samson should have remembered he was set apart for God. That means his mind should have been set upon the things of God. God would have never allowed him to be in the lust problems, sleeping around with Delilah and everyone else. He wouldn't have been at the drinking parties and partying with everybody else who was not separated from God, to God. So when we dedicate our lives to Christ and surrender our lives to Christ, it has to be reflective of a changed life. If you don't see a changed life after you give your life to Christ, then don't fool yourself to think you're born again and regenerated and have eternal life. Because there has to be a changed life. When the Holy Spirit comes inside you, you're going to be changed. And that's what we want. A life that is not compromising, that is set apart for God.
Because when we sit there and say we have and we're separated for God, but behind the scenes and secrets, we're still living like the world and the pleasures and the comforts of the world, and we're not really set apart. Then it will result in a more reproach to the name of God. People go, that is a Christian? That is a godly man? That's a godly woman? And they act and believe, they're acting no different and talk no different than the rest of the world. It brings reproach to our God. That's why we have to be very careful. And he wasn't supposed to touch dead bodies. And death is always a picture of sin, the effect of sin. And it doesn't matter what the dead body was. Any dead carcass was a no-no. It's a no-touchy. And even in the vow right there, if you notice in verse 7, you shall not make yourself unclean even with, if it's your father's dead body or your mother's or your sister's or your brother's or anybody. I don't care how close that person was. That he, you're not to touch that and get near that dead body. During that period of the vow. If so, look at the consequences and starting in verse 9. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, someone literally, someone threw a carcass at him or, or someone literally died right next to him, don't let that flying dead chicken come your way. And he defiles his consecrated head. Then he shall shave his head on, that, on the day of his cleansing. And on the seventh day he shall shave it. Verse 10. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves and two young pigeons to the priest. To the door of the tabernacle meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And make atonement for him because he sinned in regards to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. Verse 12. And he shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. So if one's vow was broken... Perhaps someone did drop down right there next to you and touched you and grabbed a hold of you as they were having a heart attack. That Nazarite would then have to go through a sanctification process, cut the hair, shave, get cleansed, and see, and go through a waiting period to be able to restart back up that vow that he made. But here's the point that the writer is saying here. That the Lord said to Moses, and Moses said to them, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it says, if you get, break the vow, it's a picture of sin. If sin has come in, death has come near you and touched you, and you made a mistake. You've come across this and it's made a mistake. Both consciously and unconsciously, willing and unwillingly make it, there's going to be a consequence, and we see that at the very end, that but the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. 
that there's going to be a gap in your life from the when you first started walking with the Lord, you gave your life to the Lord, you went back to the old life, you brought the d- darkness started creeping back into your life, and then you come back out of it. There's a going to be a period of your life is going to be lost. And you cannot regain that part of your time of your life. Apart from God. That you can come back. And yes, you may have lost a period of your life that you were in some dark zone for a while. But the Lord has gotten your attention. And he says it's time to come back. Think about the prodigal son. There was a time in his life that we know in the story he is left and partying up and playing it out and he lost everything and now he's feeding and eating with the pigs. As low as you can be. That part of his life, that part of walking with God and with his father was lost. But the father's always saying, come back. Come back. When you come to your senses, come back. And what did the father do? He restored his son, did he not? If you're a sheep that's been lost and God comes to come back, we're going to bring it back. He will restore your life. But we see here in verse 13, now, this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separations are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall present his offering to the Lord. One male lamb in his first year without blemish as a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering, and a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. So at the very end, the vow of the Nazarite ended with a public ceremony, a celebration. With extensive sacrificing of a male lamb and a ewe, a one ewe, ewe lamb and one ram and a basket of unleavened bread and drink offerings. It was a celebration of a period of time of, of separating yourself and consecrating your life to God. No wonder when Paul visited Jerusalem, he was invited to pay the expenses of some Christians who had taken a Nazarite vow and were ready to conclude it with these sacrifices. But it was a lot of sacrifice. This was a costly, this was a big celebration. But what happened when he went in there to... To, to complete the vow. Remember, when the completing of the vow was to bring these sacrifices, had the hair cut. All of this was going to come to an end for Paul. But it didn't end well, did it? We know in Acts chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, the Nazarite vow was all of a sudden interrupted. He couldn't bring the sacrifices. He couldn't do what he needed to do. He, a mob grabbed a hold of him and took him and dragged him out of the temple. And the Nazarite vow was not something that could be 
entered in lightly because there was a cost associated with the coming out of that with all of the sacrifices that were required. Then we see in verse 16, Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. And the priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meaning and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of peace of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram and one unleavened cake from the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest. Together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, after that Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else has hand is able to provide according to the vow which he has taken. So he must do according to the law of his separation. Then the priests, we see here, shall bring before the Lord. There's a celebration. Let's bring everything to the Lord. Let's lift it up and celebrate. And it's going to cost you. And it's going to be great. And we'll restore you. And all these things will take place between now the Nazarite and the priest. And the priest brings them from the Lord with the conclusion of the sacrifice, cutting of the hair, and then the celebration of what God has done in and through that person's life. In verse 22, we see the, now the priestly blessing that was to bestow upon the people here, which is very important for you to understand. It says in verse 22, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, his other, the other priests that are in training, right? Saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel, Say to them, and hold on before we go to do that. But what we're sitting here, Moses, God is telling Moses to tell the high priest Aaron and his sons, the other priests, that there's a spiritual thing they have to do for the people. A spiritual descendants were to command to bless the people of God. That was their role as the priests and spiritual leaders over the congregation. They were to bless the people. That was one of the highest things they were to do here. And God made sure Moses understood it and tell Aaron that according to this, you are going to say the following words. And I emphasize that. Because rare do you see in the scripture a prayer written out. You won't find them. You will find here this unusual written out prayer in the scriptures that the priests are to the spiritual leaders were to continue to pray upon the people. The Arianic prayer message or prayer uh, was to be over there. Now, 
Most times when you pray, you're, it's called open prayer. You're just waiting for the Lord to give you the words to pray. And as you pray, words come out of your mouth and you're just praying for whatever situation or, or purpose, or whatever reason you're doing that. Be it one-on-one or a group of people or even in a congregation. Praying for God, the Holy Spirit to move as we open up his word. But normally the time when it's written down is during a time of benediction. When there's a benediction, it's going to a case of a benediction. There's a movement that we see here that it's 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 best or it's good for you to write down the words that God gives you, and you will read that prayer during the time of benediction. For if God Himself puts those very words into the mouths of His priests or His servants, then they are God's words for the people. So what is the prayer, the Arianic blessing or prayer that is to be read verse, ver, uh, word for word to the people? Follow them because you'll notice it's the same words that we sang during our time of worship. Verse 24. And the Lord bless you and keep you. Verse 25. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It starts here. Let's talk about this for a while. It starts with the Lord bless you. A simple desire from the priest, the spiritual leaders over the congregation. A simple desire introducing everything by saying the Lord bless you. Why? Because God's telling Moses to tell Aaron and his sons, God loves to bless his people. God loves to bless his people. God loves to bless his people and he loves to have his leaders, his spiritual leaders, to long for a blessing upon the people. As a spiritual leader, they were to long for God to bless God's people only the way God can bless you notice Aaron's not blessing them he doesn't have any resources to bless them he doesn't have his sons didn't have the resources to bless them all resources and all blessings come from God This also recognizes that all blessing really comes from God and without his blessing, everything else is futile. Everything else will not lead to anything. Anything that is fruitful in a person's life. We remember also that God blesses, blessing has always in the mind Our greatest and highest good. He's always looking for what is great and good because he's a good father to bless his, his children. We often expect God's blessing in our life to mean a world of comfort or ease. Oh, the Lord bless you. And the mindset is, oh, I want them comforted and I want them to have an easy life and I don't want them to go th- have any struggles. 
So lots of times we'll say, oh, the Lord bless you, and you think of that in context. That's what you're saying to him when you say it. But that's not certainly the greatest and the highest good. Just praying for the, God, the Lord's blessing for comfort and ease is not God's best. God knows how you need to be blessed. Even if you think you know. Or maybe you, maybe you think you don't know. But God knows how to bless you and to bless me. We have often settled for happiness or comfort or wealth when God wants to bless us. Oh Lord, you know I'd be blessed if you gave me the money. Oh Lord, you know if you just give me the comforts of life, oh, I'd be blessed. If I just had that happiness, oh, but Lord, I know you're blessing me. But true blessing from God is higher than happiness. It's higher than comfort. And it's higher than wealth. Notice here, the Lord bless you and keep you. To be kept by the Lord is blessing indeed. Some are kept by their own sin and desires. That's what drives their life. Their fleshly desires is what keeps them going daily. Some are kept by idolatry and greed. Others are kept their life going through just bitterness to bitterness to bitterness and unthankfulness from one relationship to another. Anger drives them every day. I'm getting up, I'm going to get that guy. What's your purpose for today? Oh, I'm going to get that guy. Bitterness, past bitterness, anger, all these things drive people daily. That's all they think about every day. But to be kept by the Lord ensures one of a life full of peace and fruitfulness. The next part says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. To have the glorious and happy face of God shining upon man is the greatest gift one could ever have. You want to be blessed? You really want to have God's face shining down upon you. To know that God looks upon you and he is well pleased with your life, there's nothing greater. To be in his will, nothing greater. Not because of who you are or what you have done, but because you are in Jesus Christ and he's in you and you in him. There is no greater source of peace and power in one's life when you're in Jesus Christ. No greatest blessing. No greatest place to be. And it also to be gracious unto you. The idea is that God shows tender mercy and care for his people and be gracious to you. He shows grace. You don't and I do not deserve anything. 
But God still gives it. It's part of his grace. It's part of tender mercy, part of caring for you, the one he loves. Next part is the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. The priest prays God would look upon his people when God blesses, keeps, and shines, and is gracious towards his people, and look, he casts down, he casts towards his people, and is filled with nothing but blessing. His loving attention is on you as the believer. You've heard me say, you're under the, the, spout of the spout of blessing. It's under that fountain and the water's just pouring over you and it's just refreshing and just fulfilling and wonderful. Don't move outside of that spout of blessing from God. Why would you move anywhere else? And at the very end he says, and give you peace. The Hebrew word here is Shalom. It's God's word for wholeness, goodness, and total satisfaction in life. Go to Israel, you hear shalom, shalom. means a peace that just, I want your life not to be wealthy. Not just for comfort. Not just get what you want to get. But no, what they're saying is, I want your life to be whole. To be good. To be totally satisfied life in Christ. That is what he's saying to in this blessing, this Arianic blessing, this Arianic uh, uh, prayer that is the, the, the priests were to say over the people. Also notice here, if you look at 24, 25, and 26, what do you see in patterns? The Lord, the Lord. The Lord. You see it three times in that passage, in this blessing. The threefold repetition of the Lord does not prove the Trinity, nor does it teach the doctrine of Trinity, but it is a great illustration of the trilogy when you see this. Follow along with me here. The first, the Lord is that God the Father blesses and keeps His children. The second one is God the Son makes His face shine on us and brings us, what? Grace. It's only through the Son that we have grace. And then we have God the Holy Spirit. It communicates God's attention to us and gives us, what? Peace. The Holy Spirit brings and gives us peace. That's why I can see and I, I believe, even though this is not the doctrine of Trinity, but I understand it very clearly of why the blessing was the way it is because it reflects the Trinity in nature or a shadowing of the Trinity God, the triune God, and, a, and the, and the sacred, sacred benediction through the Lord, through the Lord, through the Lord. We also see in this passage six U's. Notice them. Each verse has U's. There's six of them. It's repeated six times with emphasis. Why is that important? Because God wants to bless you. We often feel, 
as if God really wanted to bless someone else. He's always blessing someone else. He's never blessing me. We get in those pity parties. And we all know that pity, self-pity is demonic. We are not to be in self-pity. And no form or fashion of self-pity. You've got to get yourself snapped out of it and go to the Lord. Because that is just pure self-pity when you don't get what you want to get. Everyone gets the blessing. Everyone else gets that. Why don't I get that? And we get into self-pity. But God says no. God says here in this blessing, I am bringing a blessing and it's focused upon you. So long as you are resting upon Christ, Christ Jesus himself, the great perfect high priest that we have, speaks from the eternal glory and says to you and me, I, the Lord, bless you. Oh, but I don't deserve it. Yeah, 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 we, we understand that. But the Lord bless you. I am so unworthy. I am so backsliding. I am so far away from God. Yes, but the Lord bless you. Jesus Christ knows all about you. But his blood covers all the sin. You've been forgiven. Come back. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, to be gracious unto you. The Lord lifts up his countenance for who? You. And who, who does he give peace to? You. Oh, have you got that solidified in your mind as you walk day by day with your Lord. He desires to what? Bless you. Why would you and I not follow him? Why would you and I not separate our, separate our lives to our, our Savior? To God Almighty. By the leading of the Holy Spirit. Why would we not want to be blessed by God? The key is, is by, if we want God and his blessing upon us, we must receive it by faith. We must receive it by faith. You must be like Jacob who would not let go of the Lord our God until God did what? Blessed him. Verse 27. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. To be blessed by God is to have his name on you. To be identified with who he is and all his nature. What a gift that we receive from God by the God's grace. We have his name upon our lives. Verse 
Aaron was commanded by Moses, who was commanded by the Lord himself, was commanded to pronounce this blessing over the people of Israel, not over other nations. Though God blesses all mankind, there is a definite and strong sense in which he has blessed only his people who have to join ourselves to him, to abide in him, to gain that blessing. He loves to bless his children. He's a good, good father. God promises to bless in response to this blessing. How appropriate it is for as pastors to pronounce these words upon the people that he is ministering to. The words to the people. How much more appropriate for every believer to be remembered that our perfect high priest in heaven, whoever lives to intercede for you and for I, wants to bless us. It's amazing. It's amazing grace. But it's truth. It was true then for someone who separated themselves from God to keep that vow as a Nazarite vow. It was also true that God asked the, uh, the spiritual leaders, the high priests and the other priests, his sons, to bless the people to make sure his people know that God Almighty, the Lord bless you. Follow him. You'll find the blessings will be poured out upon you. 